Welcome to the Fight for Grade Level Reading. I'm Brian Rees. Here in Sarasota, Florida, we're lucky to have some pretty powerful philanthropy at work on early childhood outcomes. The Patterson Foundation, which supports this podcast, is also one of the primary backers of the Suncoast Campaign for Grade Level Reading. The Community Foundation of Sarasota is one of the leads on the campaign, and other funders, including the Brancic Foundation and the Gulf Coast Community Foundation, also work on early childhood issues. Besides the great programs they fund, this gathering of philanthropy provides us here at the podcast with opportunities to speak in person with some very interesting people that the foundations bring to town, like author Michelle Borba a few episodes back. This week, the Suncoast Campaign for Grade Level Reading brought Joy Thomas Moore to town as part of an initiative to get parents and caregivers to read her book, The Power of Presence. The campaign has signed up hundreds of people in our area to participate in book circles. They heard Joy speak last night, then will read the book and share their insights before Moore returns to town to speak again in a few months. Here's my conversation with her about the lessons single parents have to teach every parent. With me today is Joy Thomas Moore. She's the author of The Power of Presence, Be a Voice in Your Child's Ear Even When You're Not With Them. She's also worked for 15 years with the Annie E. Casey Foundation and is now the president and CEO of JWS Media Consulting. Part of her current duties involves coordinating the communications team for the National Campaign for Grade Level Reading. She's also the mother of three children and became a single parent three times throughout her life. Thanks for coming in, Joy. Oh, thank you so much. I love being here. Thank you. Well, we're very lucky to have you in town. Uh, the Suncoast Campaign for Grade Level Reading brought you in, and they've been conducting book circles around your book. Yes, this is the official launch weekend. Woohoo! That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book and what it's all about for you. Well, actually, the um, the genesis of the book, the seeds of the book, came about maybe nine years ago. When my son, Westmore wrote his first book, The Other Westmore. Right. And as he was going around the country talking about it, the question in inevitably came up. So what'd your mom do? What's the difference in the moms and, you know, the, the whole sort of that mom connection? And he said he never felt comfortable talking about it because it wasn't his story to tell. He had the impact and, the, you know, the outcomes of it, but it wasn't his story. So um started talking about it then, but then I really hesitated mm-hmm. about doing it because I didn't want anyone to think that I was, an, I considered myself an expert in it because I wasn't. Sure. I was a mom who, for whatever the circumstance, you know, had to raise, you know, these three, what I call now, my amazing kids. <laughs> <laughs> didn't always call them that. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was an experimenter. Along the way, I picked up some expertise. But once I, I was convinced that sometimes it's, it's as valuable learning those things that didn't work as mm-hmm. what did work. And then I finally said, okay, well, I would do it if only I could include the stories of other women. Because through my work, while I was in television, I was in radio, and then, of course, philanthropy, I met some remarkable moms mm-hmm. and, and families and single parent and double. And just, there's some wonderful stories out there. I said, if I could include other stories... In addition to mine, okay, I think we've got a deal. And a publisher liked the idea, and here we are. <laughs> well, your, your son wrote an amazing book. The Other Westmore. The Other Westmore, right. About another kid who had the same name as he did, grew up you know, down the street, basically, and had a very different outcome, which is, I think, yes. why you got so many questions, or he got so many questions, about what the difference was 
in his parenting, maybe, as to one of the indicators for why he turned out with a very different trajectory than the other Wes Moore. Let's talk about some of the lessons you learned that you impart in the book, because one thing I was really fascinated with is that in the beginning, you really talk about how single parents actually have a lot to teach kind of everybody. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I do want to sort of you know point out, and I will answer the question, is that um, the other Westmore's mom, I think it points to how if people get the support mm-hmm. they need, we can have a lot more stories sure. um, and outcomes, as, you know, as, as my son did. Because this is a woman who was the first in her family to graduate from high school, who then went on to junior college, did well enough to be accepted to Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, for, for a single African-American mom of two boys to be accepted into Hopkins was unheard of. Sure. But, and as she was ready to start there, the Pell Grants were cut, mm-hmm. and she couldn't afford to do it. So it's sort of the importance of how public policy can impact the lives of, of, of families so, you know, that whole discussion about, you know, what moms do, sort of putting that into the mix, right. that public policy is an important factor of the, the parenting process. But as far as, you know, sort of our story, you know, I was extraordinarily fortunate in one way from the tragedy of my, my second husband mm-hmm. on dying overnight, basically, and then trying to sort of put the pieces back together again and in many ways it was the kids who helped me sure you know do that because i realized that i had to pull myself together eventually and and for them you know had, if it weren't for them i'm not quite sure what right. the outcome would have been there's so many i think families who, when confronted with with things like tragedy if they don't have the support system first of all the motivation and then a support system, a mm-hmm. team. And in the book, I call it my pride. Right. Without that, it's awfully difficult. And we, I think, you know, even though I say this is a love letter to single parents, <laughs> sure. to single moms in particular, because they're so undervalued and not celebrated the way they should, it's also a call to action that we as a collective community need to put our arms around these fragile families and even if they're afraid to ask for help, you know, be there for them. Recognize their strengths and be there. Right. I noticed that's one of the big themes that you have running through the book. I mean, you, you have your uh, seven pillars of different types of skills or, or strengths that you should um, evidence to your children or being a parent. But one of the big themes that connects all of them is connectedness. Yes. Is having that support network and also being affirmative in reaching out to what support network you have for opportunities, for support, for uh, just everyday things. Absolutely. And I think we, we in society are sometimes sort of the, the narrative is, you know, pull yourself up, you know, by the bootstraps right. and go it alone. And, and that just does not work. And when you think about it, you know, looking historically, that's never worked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but somehow there's this narrative that, you know, we did it. No, no. When immigrants first came here, they always worked together. Um, they connected with people who were already here. My own family. I had, it was our Aunt B. She came here first, mm-hmm. and then my father, and then my, my aunts and uncles. We never do it alone. And that's one of the reasons I sort of latched on to this, 
metaphor of mm-hmm. of the um, alliances, right? Because they don't go it alone at all. <laughs> you know, they they take care of each other's cubs. They they do all of these things in a group, and they trust each other. and 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 there's the mentorship and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're the warriors, and I think that getting lessons from the animal kingdom very much helped me sort of put the framework around my my own book. Another theme that I saw running through this, besides reaching out to your connections and supporting those connections, is making affirmative choices. Not just uh, positive choices, but being forceful in making the choice that you need to make. Being the architect of your own path. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the habit, having an affirmation every day, Mm -hmm. I think is really, really helpful because then you start realizing that are, there are things I can be, I can be thankful for. Mm-hmm. There are things that are positive in my life, regardless of, of any other things that may be going on. Thank you. Being grateful. Well, a lot of the skills that you talk about in your seven pillars of, of presence, they're skills that we want our children to have, too. So they're skills for parents to have, but they're really the skills that you want to show them so that they they learn them themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, kids learn best from what they see. Right. So if we're, if we're practicing humility, mm-hmm. if we are practicing being able to create boundaries between our workplace and our home, if we are able to, to manage money and not mm-hmm. have money manage us, which are all things you know, that are included in the pillars, that's what kids learn from. I love that you put that in there, actually. Because a lot of the pillars are the kind of things that you think about and that you want to embody them. But, you know, things like mind and heart and faith and courage. But then you have resources and it is very practical. I mean, it is managing your money. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the, the time, and I talk about this in the book, that it really hit me was when my son was in military school and he was going home after a Christmas vacation and he asked me for some stamps. And I looked in my my wallet and I didn't have any stamps and so I was going to take out a $5 bill to give him and I had no $5 bill (laughs) (laughs) and I realized at that moment how fragile Mm -hmm. our finances were and I didn't want to burden him with the fact that we were so you know tight so I knew I had to make changes which I did and but the, the whole idea of This is what families, so many families are faced with, Mm -hmm. you know, right now, that whole paycheck to paycheck. And when even if we're talking as straight out of the headlines, when people don't understand why furloughed federal employees had to get go to a food bank, Mm -hmm. then something is wrong with their value system that they don't understand that we aren't all multimillionaires. We all don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank as surplus that we are, you know, some of us are really struggling just to keep it going and we need to be there for them. Right. Managing your financial resources and being cognizant of that, it creates opportunities that you can then take advantage of elsewhere because you're in a safe, fairly secure place or as secure as you can be. And then you have the ability to reach out and take up these other opportunities. The other, yeah, I'm, I have one story in there from a mom out of California who um, became a lawyer. She had three kids and did all the you know, right steps to become this lawyer. And she graduated, passed the bar, went to a boutique law firm. 
but she realized she wasn't spending the quality time with her kids. But because before she was always with her, particularly her sons, going to football games, she became really adept at football. <laughs> so, I mean, long story short, she is now a college football coach. <laughs> so that's how she makes her money. I mean, you're not a perfect, you weren't a perfect parent. Oh, of course, no. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids, when they were growing up, they weren't always perfect, just that's like right. any kids. And you can see where your children made choices and you didn't tell them necessarily this is how it's going to be. You gave them the opportunity to make the choices for themselves, but from a place of security and you giving them opportunities that they could choose from. Well, I think that probably was the key in our case. You know, try to get informed choices. Mm -hmm. You know, this is where we we were so big at lists. Okay, take the list, you know, look at it. Is this column longer than that column? Now, make a decision. And I, we laugh that probably my book is the prequel <laughs> to Wes's book. Sure. You know, his book really is about choices and, and what young people need to do. And mine is how do you get them to the point where they can make those choices? Right. I think we're, we had our order a little mixed up, but it's there. <laughs> One of my favorite ones was your section on heart. And that's because you really hit home the whole idea that you're not trying to do things for your kids. Parents shouldn't be trying to do things for their kids because their kids are going to act better to them or thank them or even, you know, have a good relationship with them 10 years down the road. You're doing it because it's the right choice to make right. for your kids. Exactly. You know, I think we're basically we're stewards for, for our kids and their future. Uh, one of the things that really motivated me throughout their, their childhood was, okay, is this, behavior appropriate now mm -hmm. will this behavior be appropriate 10 years from now mm. do i want to see this behavior when they're 30 years old right and that's how i made a lot of my choices mm -hmm. in terms of what my intervention at that point would be if it's not something that i wanted to see when they became adult then you had to jump on it right away if it's age appropriate you know you leave it alone embedding the values, mm -hmm. the heart, the empathy, all those things that this is what people need to be. This is how we become a more just society. Right. And if that's what we want, that's what we should, these are the values um, that we should impart in our kids. And one thing to always remember, it's your first pillar actually is mind. And a lot of that has to do with being mindful of your own behaviors and your own activities as a parent. Absolutely. I mean, I suffer. I'm a parent and I suffer from it all the time. And I'm always trying to reexamine myself because I will say something or I will act in a certain way that has nothing to do with my child, but has everything to do with whatever happened that day to me. Right. And only by really understanding what you're doing and what's behind what you're doing, will you be able to kind of demonstrate the right behavior to your kids? Exactly. I mean, that whole thing is so funny when you're and it's easier when you're a grandparent now because yeah, <laughs> I'm watching. And I remember we were we went to a basketball game. Wes took his, his son, who's five now. Mm -hmm. It was the end of the game, and we got some Gatorade and, you know, that kind of thing. And he was giving it to Jamie. Jamie starts pouring it over his head. <laughs> and he said, well, why are you doing that? He said, well, Daddy does because um, Wes runs. Sure. So he pours water over his head. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what daddy does it so I mean something that has absolutely nothing to do it's what he picks it up kids want to be who they see yeah I mean, who are the most important people in their lives it's their parents sometimes it's it's a um, no, I won't. I want to use burden. <laughs> Sometimes it's a challenge sure. <laughs> being um, being that model, mm-hmm. but it is so important. And when we fall down in being that kind of model, then we have to be willing to say, "Okay, this is not. I have done this, and this is wrong, but this is not something you need to emulate." Right. And being able to be that honest with our kids, I think, is really important. Another one that I thought was very important, it's something that I think I'm fairly good at, is <laughs> faith. Because it's not always just spiritual faith. It's that certainty that you can have a good life ahead of you or that your life can be better. Because if you fall prey to believing that things are never going to get better, then you can't make those affirmative choices to lead yourself out. Absolutely. Well, you know, I grew up in a in a home that was so faith spiritually, you know, but my, my dad was a minister. My grandfather was a minister. I was in church all the time. Yeah. So I had that foundation. But when my husband passed, it was I, my faith faltered. I felt that that, you know, here is a person who never, ever should have left here long before he was 100 or, you know, 150 or something because he was that good. Yeah. Plus, God let me down because I said, if I stop smoking, will you please just let him, you know, live that kind of thing. And when that didn't happen, I said, okay, I I, I can't I can't believe in this in in a just God anymore. But I also knew that I could make those decisions because I I had a foundation in it. So in the back of my mind, I knew it was still there. Of course. But I couldn't go into the physical building. Mm hmm. But I said, my kids need that foundation because there are going to be times in their own lives where they need they need a foundation, where they need to know that that Martin Luther King quote in there. Faith is taking the first step, even though you can't see the end of the staircase. Right. And I know they I knew that they needed that. So my parents stepped in to provide that during the time that I was faltering. I mean, I have another story uh, in there. A woman whose husband, who's a first responder, nine eleven, very religious, very very Catholic, and when her husband died, she she lost her faith, her sort of compass, but her parents were there. Said, "Look, you've you've taught them how to. to her she had three kids. You've taught them how to pray. We can take over until you can find your faith again." Yeah, and that's what happened. You're a grandmother. Yes. So has that changed anything about how you view parenting? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very, very true when they say, you know, this is the best club to be in yeah. because you can walk away. But what, what's nice is I'm able to see things that I hoped. Wes and, and his wife was just absolutely amazing. I had hoped to see that. I hope that I had imparted certain things along the way that I see in their kids. Their kids are the most empathetic kids I've ever met. They're really sweet. And people are always talking about, you know, what they do for other kids. Well, you sound like a grandparent right now. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) They're just amazing. (laughs) But I, I also see the, you know, where the challenges are. 
and I see them handling in the way that I sort of would. So that that's sort of a justification. Okay, I had 20, 25 years, and it's your turn now. But you sort of feel almost, almost what's the word, not justified, but just successful. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're a successful parent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Joy, thank you very much for coming on. I would recommend everyone read this book. It's so useful for a lot of different, whether you're a parent or not. It's almost more of a guide for people going through life, whatever their challenge is. But I think a lot of people could pick up a lot from the book, The Power of Presence. So thanks again, Joy. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Next week, we'll have another interesting visitor to our area, David Lawrence Jr., author of A Dedicated Life, Journalism, Justice, and a chance for every child. After spending most of his life as a journalist in newspapers across the country, David retired as publisher of the Miami Herald in 1999. Almost immediately, he started a crusade to improve the outcomes of children in Florida and across the country. Now, a final thought. There's an American myth that's hard to shake, summed up in the simple phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Last weekend, local nonprofit Step Up Suncoast held a poverty simulator, that had a powerful impact on the participants, mostly school employees, funders, and people who work at nonprofits. They role-played families living on the economic edge in a complex game that required getting to work, cashing disability checks, buying food and medicine, paying the mortgage, and all of the dozens of seemingly simple activities that many of us take for granted. Here's what one participant said. Even though we were, according to our packet, a bonded, faith-practicing group of functional adults, an advantage not every family has, we fell steadily behind. Unlike others, we avoided getting fired, buying drugs or a gun from the circulating dealer, who also stole social security cards, or ended up in the homeless shelter or jail. And thankfully, our chairs were never turned upside down, representing an eviction. By the end of the pretend month, we'd kept food on the table and the lights on, but Grandma had gone without any medication, we'd pawned two cameras for next to nothing, and we were still short on the mortgage. Organizer Carol Hunt's closing words sum up the thoughts that many would be taking home from the experience. There are people who live like this every day and do not know when, or if, it will ever end. It was a haunting reminder of how oblivious we often are to the struggles around us. As one Foundation staffer muttered, our community just has no idea. So here's your homework. Just try to do what Carol Hunt asked all the participants to do at the end of the poverty simulation. Approach your comparatively privileged lives with a little more kindness, a little more patience, and a little more understanding. Talk to you next week.